Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to this bonus episode of Headspace and Timing, commemorating the events that happened on September 11, 2001. This show was released on September 11, 2019. As those of you who know me know, one of my personal heroes is Cyril Rick Rescorla, who tragically lost his life saving others from the collapsing towers. A few years ago, I was a guest on a podcast hosted by my friend, Green Beret Jeff Adamek, talking about Rick and his sacrifice. I'd like to share that episode with you now in order to never forget. On the morning of September 11, 2001, 19 members of the Islamic extremist group, Al-Qaeda, boarded four airliners with intentions of hijacking them and using them as missiles to attack multiple targets in the United States of America. American Airlines Flight 11 and United Airlines Flight 175 were flown into the north and south towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. Flight 11 into the North Tower at 0846 and Flight 175 into the South Tower at 0903. In the 44th floor of the South Tower were the offices of Morgan Stanley Dean Witter, a financial holdings company. Between the employees present on the 44th floor and the additional employees in World Trade Center Building 5, approximately 2,700 employees working that day. All but six survived the attacks that day. 2,700 souls survived. And when asked, they will almost all attribute their survival that day to one name, Cyril Richard Rascorla, better known as Rick Rascorla. On a day filled with unimaginable horrors and evil, we also have selfless sacrifice, bravery, and inspiration from stories of men and women who place the safety and welfare of others above their own, and under unimaginable odds. Rick Rascorla, in this host's humble opinion, is one of the most understated examples of leadership, audacity, selfless service, and sacrifice that I've ever been fortunate enough to learn about. This episode is Changing Hearts and Minds podcast, a small but heartfelt dedication to the sacrifice and leadership of Mr. Rick Rascorla. Can you keep a secret? Changing hearts and minds. Changing, 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 Welcome to Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Changing Hearts and Minds, a show about reviving the warrior spirit and remembering the past to improve our future. I'm your host, Jeff Adamick. Let's get this party started. Ladies and gentlemen, am I totally screwed or what? <laughs> You're funny. You're funny. I want to discuss all this behavior. Let me out of here! Hey guys, this is Jeff. Welcome to uh, Changing Hearts and Minds. You guys have seen in the past, I've been doing these episodes where I have military heroes and, and the people that, that, that uh, they, the other military people that look up to them, 
that's where this particular show started off at. But when I started looking into the actual guy that today's show is going to be on, it's going to morph into its own separate show just about that guy that has nothing to do with that hero, the hero series that I'm doing, just because of all the stuff you're going to hear me and uh, me and my guest today, Dwayne France, host of Headspace and Timing. But let's uh, welcome Dwayne back to the show. Dwayne, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming up with this guy's name. So, Dwayne, we uh, we talked a little bit earlier. Um, I had reached out to all the hosts of Changing Change Your POV podcast network, and I asked them to give me their military role model slash hero, kind of going with the last two shows you guys have heard uh, on Jason Dunham and Dick Bong. At first, you came back with a separate guy. Uh, let's let's talk about the evolution of how you got to picking the the man that you picked for this for this show. Well, yeah, I uh, and and I think you were looking at two different projects. We were talking about battles in American history that you thought were. Uh, decisive uh, or important, uh, pretty much going off of what uh, you and Andrew are talking about, you know, your episode on the Battle of Trenton and things like that. And so uh, you would, I guess, asked us about what that was going to be like. And I came up with um, the Wilderness Campaign uh, from Grant as far as being decisive for the Civil War. And we had a little bit back and forth about that. Uh, but then Sherman's March to the Sea. And, uh, and I've always been more par- uh, partial to uh, William Sherman and, and definitely what they did there at the end of the Civil War. And so a- after I listened to the episode of, uh, about uh, Richard Bong and, um, and kind of was thinking that that's not the, the hero. You know, when I think of, you know, who I would, you know, I guess put on a pedestal, which like this, lit- this guy literally is on a pedestal at Fort Benning. Um, but uh, who I would see as as my personal hero, uh, it, it wasn't so much Sherman, which was somebody that I, I could learn from in history um, and and honor what he did as far as um, uh, his achievements and you know the, the, his his style of warfare and what he did. Uh, but this guy was much more recent and and much more applicable, I think, to my leadership style. The guy we're going to be talking about today, Rick. Go ahead and say the last name for me. It's, it's Rescorla, Rescorla, as far as I so it's Rick Rescorla. Uh, so Rick Rescorla, guys, and, and here's the interesting thing about Rick Rescorla is we are going to focus on a little bit of him as a military leader, but believe it or not, what gets him onto probably Dwayne's list and definitely now my list of, of his importance and his uh, role as a person that I think every American should know about, quite honestly, is what he did after the military, particularly what he did between the years of 1991 and 2001, that really, really is what makes this guy a legend and someone who should be legendary and somebody that we should look to on how to, I mean, the guy was damn near clairvoyant. You know what I mean? I mean, it's it's scary what this guy was able to foresee. And I'm talking specifically about the September 11th attacks. You know, by all means, the guy pretty much saw it coming. Beyond that, the man worked in the South Tower for uh, Dean Morgan Stanley and is, you know, personally responsible for saving the lives of 2,700 people sacrificed his own life at the end there during it. Beyond that, let's go back and talk about a little bit of the history of Rick Rescorla and uh, where he came from. Rick Rescorla was not an American citizen born. This, this man was, he was born in, in, uh, in England, born in 1939. He joined the British military when he, became, when he became 17 years old. And he actually was a combat veteran before he was ever even an American military guy. Uh, do you know anything about that? You want to talk anything about that, Dwayne? Yeah. So he uh, he was in um, the the British military, and then he left, and he was actually in the uh, the Rhodesian police force. So he was actually in in sort of their colonial police 
in in, a- in Africa um, where he saw combat. I mean, they were you know this wasn't just uh, you know Bobby's patrolling the street with nightsticks. These guys were were fully engaged. Um, you know, so he was uh, he was working in Africa and and saw combat in, in northern Rhodesia uh, even before he signed up for Vietnam. Uh, but he went to the U.S. military because he wanted to jump out of airplanes. He wanted to be a paratrooper. When you talk about things that are going to get me and uh, Dwayne interested in, in you personally, making that step to becoming a the paratrooper is definitely going to get our interest peaked up. As you as you guys, you know, if you are listeners to me and Dwayne show, you both know that we were in the 82nd Airborne Division, and we both spent the last few years, the, the formative years of our combat experiences in special operations. Uh, Dwayne out in 10th Group as a combat support guy and me over in third group as a as a green beret so we, we definitely love those paratroopers and i'll talk about paratroopers all day long so he he gets combat time in the british military fighting in cyprus there was a communist insurgency that occurred in cyprus back in the uh i mean good lord it had to be the the, the late 40s early 50s it was definitely prior to vietnam kicking off so he served and then as you said he was a member of the uh the rhodesian uh police force and and fought fought in rhodesia during the, during all that stuff and he was also a member of the metropolitan police force for for the city of london i believe for a couple of years before he decided to pick himself up move himself to the united states and join the united states military this guy didn't just go into the united states military and serve a couple of years but this man took took part in probably one of the most pivotal anti-communist events in in the 20th century you want to go ahead and, t- and tell everyone what uh what unit he was in and what what battle he took part in yeah i mean and i think this is where a lot of people um they they may know of rick um sort of by uh by action and, and by um you know image but they don't know that it's him as you mentioned uh, i think before we talked uh he was on the uh, battle of and this is uh, something else i want to get into he was at the battle of lz x-ray uh, in, um, uh, he was in two seven cav, uh, but, uh, but one seven cav, how more was, uh, was in charge of one seven cav. And so he was on the ground, um, as one of the early elements in relief of one seven cab in, um, uh, LZ x-ray. Now I do want to caveat here because, uh, you, you may get a lot of, uh, correspondence on this episode. You and me are, are amateur historians at best. And, and right. this is a huge pivotal thing a lot of people are going to come on and say oh you you pronounced Rhodesia wrong or you know that's not exactly how it happened I get it you know I'm a truck driver that read a lot of books so it's not like uh, you know I'm, I'm probably going to get some of this stuff wrong uh, but uh, Rascorla uh, was was part of uh, Halmore's sister battalion uh, and so Bravo Company um, Bravo Company 27 Cav uh, was who he was with, and he jumped on to uh, LZ X-Ray uh, sort of halfway through the battle. And some of the stuff that he did in LZ X-Ray, you talk about um, heroism. Any one of these things that he did would put him in the, the Hall of Heroes. Um, but not just uh, – he he freaking fixed bayonets and, and charged the enemy, uh, you know, in modern warfare. You know, how many times do we know that that happens? I, I – you know, your recent episode, you were talking about uh, Corporal Dunham and, and his hand-to-hand combat. You know, this dude, like, literally made the command of fixed bayonets. Uh, and it was during that charge, which uh, they took that picture. Uh, Phil Arnett, I think it was, from uh, uh, from the media had taken that picture that ended up on the, the cover of the book, We Were Soldiers. So uh, Rescorla was one of the, and I don't even say minor actors, but he was one of the, 
uh, individuals in Hal Moore's book, uh, We Were Soldiers Once and Young. I joined the British Army in 1957 at age of 70 and a half. And uh, within six months, I was in Cyprus, which was then in terrorist uh, duty. After 1960, I went to Rhodesia, which is a colonial police force, essentially a paramilitary police force. And I got interested in America because I was a parachutist, and America was the headquarters of the best parachutists in the world. Looking down as we came in, we were coming in very fast. I saw an awful lot of North Vietnamese dead lying out there. Some of them were burned black. I turned to Fantino, my radio operator, and said, boy, they've cleaned them up. I said, you know, there's a lot of North Vietnamese down there. They've done a job on them. And he said, sir, I'm looking on my side. There's a lot of Americans dead down there, too. We had a napalm bomb dropped on us. And at that time, my medic, uh, Doc Burlisle, excellent fellow uh, from Oklahoma, stood up to help the people burned and was shot through the head. We stopped briefly with him until he died. And then we moved on into the, into the position. That night, about 10.30, as I remember it, the tracers started coming through the trees. And thinking about it later, you know, the, the weapons of dead men um, helped us that, that night. Those individuals who, who helped, took the first brunt of the attack, we used their weapons and uh, fought through the night. You know, the battle was over at about dawn. The order was given to go out on a final sweep. We all stood up. We were online, and that is the picture I think you see in front of the book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, of us doing a final sweep. We went out approximately 30 meters. It was a machine gun team. One of the machine gunner came alive and started lacing down on us. And how he missed us, I don't know. You could just, I mean, see the smoke coming out. He was only about seven yards away from me at the time. I fell away to the right, firing, emptied my magazine. My radio operator, Fantino, I looked back at him and said, grenade. He threw a grenade up to me. I pulled the pin, dropped it over the elephant grass on top of these guys. A matter of a few yards, that's all. It exploded, and nobody could have lived through that one. And in this regard, I think, you know, Fantino definitely saved my life. Retrieval of the bodies was number one, our American bodies first. The smell was horrific, and Colonel Moore came forward, and, and he called us all around. He said, look, he said, these are boys, these American boys, I'm going to send them home to their parents, and tears in his eyes, and Sergeant Major Plumley was there, and we promised him they wouldn't leave one, one individual on the battlefield, uh, not one American would be left on the battlefield. All right, so what we just heard there was we, we, heard, we heard Rick Rescorla, that was actually him, talking about um, his landing uh, at a, the Adrang in Adrang during at LZX Ray and his uh, his interpretation of of the battle scene as he showed as he showed up there 24 hours after the initial uh, guys landed at LZX Ray and you can hear in there that he speaks directly about Hal Moore and Sergeant Major Plumley respectfully the guys played played in in the movie by uh, by Mel Gibson and uh, Sam uh, who was the guy that played Sergeant Major Plumley in the movie Sam Elliott uh, Sam Elliott. Uh, yeah. Sam Elliott, who started playing Sergeant Major Plumley. Uh, Sergeant Major Plumley, I actually had the uh, the pleasure of meeting people that knew him directly, including uh, including the guy in the movie who keeps telling him good morning. Uh, he worked down in uh, Fort Fort Benning, and I got to meet him, and and he talked about how Sergeant Major Plumley that, that Sam Elliott hit it out of the park with playing that role. I mean, that was exactly the way Sergeant Major Plumley was in real life. So you hear him talk about it in that in that clip we just played. This guy knew these guys directly, and these guys knew them so well. 
that Hal Moore himself, during a dedication ceremony that occurred at Fort Benning, Georgia, a few years ago, Hal Moore referred to, to Rick Rascola as the greatest combat infantry platoon leader he had ever run into. And um, this guy was well known to be completely off the wall. Bananas, his, uh, his men and his peers nicknamed him Hardcore and called his company or his platoon Hardcore because this guy was just, a, he would train as hard as he fought. He was well known for having a statement that in times of stress and, you know, great turmoil, people do not rise to the occasion. People fall to the level of their training. And I think that statement in and of itself is just brilliant. And it's and it's fantastic leadership because it's absolutely true. Uh, when you're stressed out and you don't know what to do, you're always going to revert back to muscle memory. And he understood this as a leader. So he made sure his guys were trained specifically and directly to worst case scenarios so that when the shit hit the fan, so to speak, they didn't have time to rise to the occasion. If you, if you, if you wait on people to rise to the occasion, people are going to let you down. Nine times out of ten, you are going to be let down. And not because people are bad, but because human nature di- dictates the reason why heroes are heroes is because not everybody could be one. <laughs> so if you want your people to be prepared and ready, you've got to have them completely regulated down to making whatever they need to do in times of crisis, absolute muscle memory. And this goes throughout his entire life and is one of the reasons why he is noted with saving so many lives during 9-11, unfortunately not his own, and we'll get into that, how you know he sacrificed himself, but even the story of that leaves some, leaves some things to be desired in some people when you think about what are you willing to do for other people and you know compared to what this guy did for other people. So he goes into Vietnam. He works. He's in the Yidrang Valley. He, he's at LZ X-Ray. He knows Hal Moore and Sergeant Major Plumley. Pivotal part of the battle. He earns. He, you know, he continues to stay in Vietnam. Far past that, he ends up being in a, in a numerous battles. Uh, he leaves Vietnam with a Silver Star, a Bronze Star, a Purple Heart, and the Vietnam Cross of Gallantry for for all of his his, uh, his efforts in Vietnam. He gets out and he retires from the military some years later as a colonel. And a few years pass and he gets hired by Morgan Stanley. And I think that at the time they weren't owned by Morgan Stanley. They were owned by somebody yeah. else. Um, it was uh, it was Dean Witter. They, Dean, uh, Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter merged uh, in the mid to late 90s, I right. think. But yeah, when he was there. Uh, it was uh, Morgan Stanley. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and just that, you know, you, you talk about his, his level of preparation. You know, he had... Um, uh, he was still continuing to serve. He continued to serve um, even after Vietnam. I mean, the, the guy just, the, he didn't quit. He he did want to distance himself from the Vietnam uh, experience. Um, he, he didn't want a, there's, um, uh, there's some stuff online, and I'll, I'll send you the link to it, about how he didn't want an Audie Murphy experience of, of having parades and things his entire life. But he did. He did continue on with the National Guard. He actually retired as a, a full colonel, uh, and and he was actually going to be. He, he thought that he was going to continue with that in New York, uh, and and so when he got to New York, and there's a passage in this book. There's a, there are many books, many stories about him. Uh, one called Heart of a Soldier is by James B. Stewart. It's a story about uh, him, and it, it's really covering all of what we're talking about here. But it's. Um, about him and his best friend Dan Hill, uh, but there's this passage here, and it gives a little bit of an idea of of sort of what kind of guy uh, Rescorla was. Uh, and so it's uh, when when Desert Storm kicked off, uh, his buddy Hill uh, and some other people were like, "Well, hey, we're we're old soldiers. We can do what we want to do. You know, we can join back and and do something." Uh, and and Rick kind of went the other way, uh, and he said when he moved to Dean Witter. Rick had contacted the New York National Guard expecting to resume active duty in the reserves. 
Though he'd been full, promoted to full colonel, he was told to appear for an interview at the National Guard Armory on Park Avenue in Manhattan. When he arrived, wearing his uniform and medals, he met a panel of three colonels. He could tell by, from their decorations that none of them had any combat experience. They began asking questions, and Rescorla didn't like the tone of the interview. They seemed cool, skeptical of some of his answers. Finally, he asked, what exactly am I doing here? We're evaluating you, one said. Gentlemen, I don't believe there's anyone in this room qualified to evaluate me, Rescorla said. Then he stood up and left and resigned his commission. I love this guy. I absolutely yeah, love that right there, guy. right? I mean, even if that was the only thing that he did, I mean, that's, I mean, even before mic dropping was a thing, yeah. that was like, screw you guys. Like Eddie Murphy in Coming to America on the stage, you know, sexual chocolate, holds the mic out, drops it down, walks off stage. And the thing is, is the reason why I love it so much is because he's absolutely right. How could you possibly, with no combat experience and no significant combat experience, sit in and judge a man who has the experience level and the exposure to combat that someone like this guy has? And, you know, you know, it's just I love it. I love it, and I and I love yeah. the I love the arrogance and the boldness of his leadership ability. And you know, for God's sakes, I mean, all morning long, I, I could not get enough of of going on and watching videos on this guy and watching the the piece that we that we played before. There's going to be a piece a little bit later where you know it's kind of creepy what you're going to hear in there, but um, not he wasn't creepy, but what his his foreshadowing of the events of 9/11 and and after that, um, this guy really knew what he was talking about. I mean, he was absolutely brilliant. His ability to, to look at the, the, the landscape of the world and the way things are going and be able to say, hey, look, this is what's going to happen next. You don't get that by reading books. You get that by experiences that you, you build over time. And this guy really took all of his combat experience and really put them to good use. And um, I honestly believe uh, that use is what saved those people from Morgan Stanley on September 11th. Now, when he you talk about how he distanced himself from the military, this guy wasn't a blind pro-military guy. He he 100% disagreed with our reasoning for being in Vietnam and was very vocal about it. His boldness and leadership of just, you know, I'm going to do what I've got to do because I'm a military, I'm a member of the military, but I don't agree with this at all. And that's why I think a lot of him separating himself from the Vietnam conflict afterwards came from. He had no problem with dropping a hammer on a bad guy. On, on the enemy of the United States, but he didn't. He didn't 100% support the reason why we were there. Yeah, but you know, and I, I think that's a, an important lesson for us too. Is um, you know, and in, in even going back, a lot of people say blindly, you know, ours is not the question why, ours is but to do or die, right? You know, and and it doesn't matter the reasons, you know, why I was sent to Bosnia, you know, or, or why we were in Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, the fact is we were there, and I think that's one thing that Rescorla truly believes, regardless of the reasons that I'm here, whether I agree with them or not, I'm here. Uh, and the men to my left and right um, are, are more important to me than, than whatever global you know, politics have, have landed me here. And, and this was the thing about Rescorla. Again, so many people think they know or, or, or maybe believe they know. It, it even goes beyond even what the movie is, right? You know, and, and we were soldiers – Rescorla is not a character in the movie. Uh, he's not actually his his actions there. And there were so many different things going on in that. Um, but the 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 movie itself was only based off of half the book. So it didn't go into the actions uh, that, that happened afterwards in LZ Albany. Uh, the only thing, if, if someone goes back and watches the movie, at the end of the movie, as they're advancing up the hill to clear the uh, the bunkers or what have you, that a guy reaches down and picks up a bugle. 
that was Rescorla. Rescorla did that, right? But that's not how it happened or when it happened. Even the story beyond that indicates what what he was and how he how how his his unit and how his men were as important to him. Like I said before, Rescorla was a member of two seven cav. He wasn't he wasn't a member of first, but he was in the sister battalion. So two seven cav and two five cav um, came in and relieved one seven cav uh, Moore and Plumley's unit off of um, LZ X Ray. Uh, Bravo Company with Rescorla's platoon was picked up out of there uh, and they were airlifted out. The other two battalions that had come in in relief uh, had to, to march out. Essentially, they had to road march. And this is the second half of the book. If anyone's ever read the book, uh, We Were Soldiers, this is the second half of the book in which um, you know a, a unit essentially got decimated uh, by an ambush. Does, doesn't it have the <clears> happy <throat> ending that, or not the happy ending, but doesn't have the uplifting ending that the movie portrays. It really does have a. Well, uh, I mean, it is. I mean, it's. But there's 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 some story of of heroism, George Forrester, and and some some amazing stuff that happens in that second part of the book too, uh, and and ultimately um, through heavy losses they they get out of there. But so uh, Rescorla and his company, uh, he was the only surviving platoon leader that, that walked off of um, LZ X-Ray from Bravo Company. Uh, so him and his company commander, I, I think, were the only two officers um, that survived LZ X-Ray. They were actually reinserted in relief of LZ Albany. And so he had this massive battle that, that he had, you know, all of this in, in the, the bayonet charge and, uh, of course, nearly you know, killed and things like that. And then was sent back. His was the only because Bravo, this was their parent unit now. So 2-7 uh, Cav, uh, 2nd Battalion, 7th Cav, is now in a firefight. And they get reinserted less than I think it was like 48 hours after they just had the battle of their life. And he walks in and, and I think he described it as, as just like one bloody car wreck, the entire column. And it was while they were doing the, the – um, uh, the recovery, that's when he found the bugle, the famed bugle of the 7th Cav. And so it was actually, and, and so of course we know Hollywood takes the liberties, but it was in that second engagement that he went. But the fact, that, I mean, he, there was no question for him. He, whether he agreed with the politics, why were there not, his battalion needed him and his men, and he led his men back into LZ Albany, and establish perimeter so they can get out. It's uh yeah, we we can go on and on. I mean, I think we could do an entire series of shows just on the uh, the Adrang Valley and, and everything that happened there. It's pretty impressive. And, and what's unfortunate about modern day movies and and and, and pop culture is. No, they focus on on small portions of it where where we were soldiers once and young, which is the actual original name of the book um, before it was altered after the movie came out. Really does only tell half the story. You know, there was there was quite a bit of a loss of American. There was a quite a bit of loss of American life in we were soldiers as the movie portrays it, which is the first half of the book. But the second half of the book really they, they were almost completely wiped out. I mean, they right. the, the Vietnamese really did counterattack and really put it to those guys, and it, there was quite a bit of. Uh, there's stories that are just beyond they're just beyond anything that I could possibly imagine. And that's that's having six, you know, tours of combat and some of those stories are just beyond. And this guy was a he was pivotal and, and a part of all of them. Like I said before, to get to the point where Hal Moore himself 
has such had such a high opinion of the man, you know, as a combat leader. So he gets out of the military. He goes uh, he goes to school, University of Oklahoma, gets a bachelor's and a master's degree in English. And going back to his time with with the Metro Police and and all his military experience, he ends up becoming a a criminal justice instructor. And he, t- he teaches a couple of years at the University of South Carolina as at doing criminal justice. And and then finally he's hired. He's hired by Mor- D- uh, Dean Morgan Stanley to be, and I believe it. Dean Witter Reynolds was the first company he joined. Then they they merged with Morgan Stanley. So he was the head of corporate security for the World Trade Center for those companies. Gets there, and you referred you referred a couple minutes ago to his friend uh, Hill. Yep. Um, he has this buddy that he that he's really good friends with Hill, and, and he brings this guy in as a consultant. This is right when he first gets to the World Trade Center, and, and he and this is years before 9/11. And he, he goes in there and he says, "I need you to do a security assessment um, on on the building." and the guy walks in right to the uh, basement where they have the open, open, uh, open way. You could just drive right underneath the building, and he says, "Someone's going to drive a truck underneath here and try to detonate a bomb near a security structure." And they both knew it. They both took a look at it. They both agreed. Rick Rascola goes to the Port Authority, which were the people who actually owned, you know, the Port Authority Police Department, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey actually owned the World Trade Center. He goes directly to them. This is in 2001, or not 2001. This is in 1990, 1991. He goes to them and he says, "Listen, guys, uh, someone's going to put a bomb." in a truck underneath here by support structures and try to blow this building up. And he pretty much gets laughed out and ignored by the Port Authority. What are you going to know, man? And, you know, I'm thinking to myself probably exactly what he's thinking. Yeah, what do I know? I only have, you know three different combat, you know, situations. And, you know, I've been doing this for, for 20, 30 years. And I was a retired colonel who you yeah. know, is on the cover of one of the most friggin' recognizable books on warfare Twentieth century, but yeah, I don't know anything. So he goes back and he just he just tries to do the best he can for his people, and then and then the initial attack on the World Trade Center happens in two, in uh, 1993. So in 1993, they drive a truck just like he said they would underneath into the basement and they detonate it, killing six people and wounding 300. But he spent the entire day making sure everyone was out of the South Tower. I mean, he did not leave the building until everyone else was out. The entire time making notes. The entire time he's on the phone with with uh, with Hill saying, you know, we were right. This is what happened. They finally succumb to his 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 well placed, you know, pressure as a leader, saying, look, you know, I hate to say I told you so, but um, here we are. They they did exactly what we said they would do, and they're not done. This is a massive target. This is the this is the heart of capitalism. And he goes into long conversation about why they attacked. And uh, we're going to pause right here, and I'm going to play you guys a piece on him talking about what he thinks. This is all post-1993, but prior to 2001. When you're talking about the future wars, we're talking about engaging in Los Angeles. We're talking about terrorist action. Terrorist forces can tie up conventional forces. They can bring them to their knees. good example was in Beirut, the Beirut bombing and the more recent bombings, Saudi bombings. We're talking about no specific groups, no specific religions. For example, the the Muslims, uh, people have blamed the Muslims. The Muslims are honorable people. It's just small segments of of fanatics and terrorists. They may well be Americans, as we saw in the Oklahoma City bombing. Hunting down terrorists, this will be the nature of war in the future. Not great battlefields, not great tanks rolling, Military power is completely secondary to national will and national morality. You know, the whole of the world would get behind the idea in the end uh, that individual freedoms are important, that the social contract between 
an individual and his government is a two-way street. But they will not get behind actions like Nicaragua, where we're backing the wrong people often, where we're supporting dictators for the thought of economic stability so that our foreign and domestic corporations can do business. And finally, I would say that the residue of hatred this is creating in these foreign countries where we're doing these things and we don't think there are any repercussions, those people should think about the World Trade Center bombing and things of this nature. Things will come home to roost, and they may be 20 years later, of cavalier actions that we're taking now out there. And who is directing these cavalier actions? People who have never, in command and control, have never seen a shot fired in anger in their life, except hearing a round fired near the White House where somebody's mugging a tourist outside. We can't even straighten up our capital in terms of crime. We think we can go out there and be the world's top cop. It's impossible. Okay, guys. I know what you just heard there is probably sounds like somebody who just read a bunch of books, just said, I predict this is going to happen after reading historical books and everything that's happened in the last 15 years in the United States. Because everything he says happens almost exactly as he said it would. But that was before 9-11. That was well before 9-11. And to me, I hear him talk about the future of warfare is terrorism. The future of warfare is going to be fought in American soil. They, you know, nine, you know, all them. That's creepy. It is creepy that this man had the had was able to see everything coming that far in advance. Nobody listened to him. Uh, they listened to him and tightened up security at the at the uh, the, the basement of of uh, the World Trade Center and they tightened security down there. He brings Hill back in. And he says to Hill, well, he goes, can they get me now? And Hill says, yes, they can still get you. He goes, well, they're not driving in. And Hill says, no, but they're going to hit you from the air. They're going to use a plane. Yep. So this guy, Hill, actually grows a beard. And he, pre- he fronts himself as an anti-American Muslim convert and goes to the same mosques that the guys who did the initial attack did and tries to get a like a litmus test. He, he tries to do his, he like does intel, try, tries to figure out if these guys really committed to doing this again. And his assessment after doing all this stuff, which is just insane that he did this, is, yeah, they're going to hit you again. So here's where it even gets creepier. Rick Rascola had another friend who was another security expert, and he goes to him and he says, hey, you've got um, Microsoft Flight Simulator. Can you see if an attack from the air is even possible? And here's something that's really going to just turn your gut. This guy gets on his flight simulator and pretends to be an, a cargo plane. Now, so it's not an actual... Uh, airline plane, but a cargo plane flying out of Newark Airport, which, by the way, is one of the places that one of the planes on 9-11 came from, and he shows that in three minutes of taking off, that plane could be crashing right into the World Trade Center, and unfortunately, I mean, this guy didn't go public with it, so there's no, like, this guy gave them an idea, but he pretty much plans out the entire 9-11 attacks exactly the way it happened on a flight simulator and says, look, this is what's going to happen. Rascola, being who he is, goes back to the Port Authority again and says, look, we're not, they're not done. They're going to come back. They're going to hit us again. They're going to do it this way. Port Authority says, look, we gave you everything you wanted last time. The best thing we can do is put you in charge of you know, making sure that your people are prepared as much as possible. So they give him carte blanche to do whatever security measures he needs in the World Trade Center. He has extra cameras and lighting put inside the, the stairwells. He has... You know, smoke smoke evacuators placed in all the stairwells to try to clear the stairwells out in the event of a fire. He has what well, I think it was twice a year he would do all hands on deck, you know, fire alarms, kind of like, you know, evacuation preparation training. And his company would, no matter whether you were the CEO, 
It didn't matter if you were corporate. Didn't matter when I when I blow the alarm on this uh, evacuation, you know, drill. Everyone's going to get up and everyone is going to walk down the stairs and out of the building twice a year. And he did that every single time that he had it planned out from the time that 2003 happened all the way up until the morning of, of September 11, 2001. Yeah, you know, and, and think about that. And, and, and I was thinking about this this morning is um, my office, we have about, uh, say, 25 staff. Um, it, it's, it's sort of a large suite, um, but it takes half of, of one floor of an office building, a two-story building. Uh, and I was thinking if if I were to institute some type of random drill or something like that, I mean, I work with a bun- bunch of mental health professionals. Everyone here has advanced degrees and right. and everything else. Um, but but people would flip their lids. They'd be I mean, it would be like, you know, I, we can't do that. You know, what I mean, and of course, so we got to work. You know, there's there's clients here and it's, this is such a disruption. And why would we do this and stuff like I mean, it, imagine where you work, Jeff, if somebody were to come in and and have something like that stringent, it would be a lot of resistance. And even to withstand that resistance to say, okay, I get it. It, it, it makes you upset. You know, you're going to, you know, chew on tinfoil for a while, but you're still going to do this because I know this goes back to that boldness and that audacity of, I know that this is going to save your life one day. I know that this is going to, to be something that needs to be done. And so this goes back to your earlier comment about you know, uh, lowering to the level of your training, the preparation that he had in place for Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter is what saved so many people on 9-11. Yeah. If you, if you go back, if, and I recommend this and I'm sure that, that Dwayne does too, go onto YouTube, put in Rick Riscola's name and a bunch of videos will pop up and you watch these videos and they talk about in these videos, how much of a pain in the ass it was. Uh, Rick Riscola would, you know, run these drills and it didn't matter if you were, you know, the head of the financial department and you were on the phone with your most important client, you were going to get up off your ass and you were going to walk out in the middle of that phone call doing this drill because that's what's going to happen in real life. It's going to come at the most inopportune moment and just be a giant pain in the ass, but you're going to have to get up and do that. So you need to do it. And they talk at, at length in these videos about how much people just hated it and how much they, they you know, ridiculed him or, or complained about him and everything they did. But these same people who did that are the ones who are on these videos talking about how he saved their lives, about how they, they completely attribute that the fact that they're alive today because they were, you know, these weren't like third floor employees, you know, that were well far away from the impact. When that second plane hit, people on the floor that Rick Rascola was on are interviewed and in saying that the impact of the hit threw them out of their chairs, out of their shoes against the wall. So they were very close to where that plane hit which was quite a, quite a ways up there. So it wasn't no easy task to just get up and walk out. And to, to bring it a step further, and I guess we can just get right into it. So the morning of September 11th, Rick Riscola is at work. You know, they've, years and years they've done all this planning and preparation. The first plane at 8.46 a.m., flight American Airlines Flight 1111 hits the North Tower. Now Rick was in the South Tower. The plane hits the North Tower. Everybody realizes that something something bad has happened there was an intercom system which was put in place because Rick Riscola got them to put this intercom system in place so that they could advise people throughout the buildings of what was going on. They're over the intercom system, they say, uh, yeah, they advise them a plane has hit the uh, South Tower or, or the North Tower. Everyone in the South Tower, you can stay at your workstations. There's no big deal. Well, Rick ain't having that. Rick gets right. everybody up and says, no, everyone get out. And he starts maneuvering all of his people at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter out of the building. Now, 
2,700 employees. There were 2,996 people that died in the World Trade Center on 9-11. 2,700 people is almost the same amount of people that died in the entire day. He had to get that many people out of the building just in his for his job. Just, that was just his personal responsibility were those 2,700 people. All but six people got out of the building and didn't die. And of those six people from his company that did die, every single one of them was part of his security team. Right. Which means that him and his security team stayed behind after they got all of their people out and tried to get the rest of the people that were in the building out. The last foot, the last known sighting of Rick Riscola on 9-11 was five minutes before the South Tower came down. And uh, for those of you who, who maybe don't know exactly what happened, 846, the North Tower was hit. At 903, the South Tower was hit by Flight 175, the United Airlines Flight 175. But South Tower came down first. And if you guys look at the footage, you can see that the South Tower was hit below where the North Tower was hit at uh, by about 20 floors. So it was hit a little bit lower. So it had a lot more of undamaged heavy weight above it, you know, as as the and guys, I, I already can see, foresee all the emails I'm going to get from all you conspiracy theorists about the bombings that went off in the tower. And yeah, listen, that's the that's the other correspondence you're going to. Yeah, yeah but that's okay. Because we don't that's give fine. a crap. That's fine. I don't care about that because I'm here to tell you that you know me and Dwayne at the time worked in special operations, and I was not at World Trade Center putting bombs in the World Trade Center to bomb it. All right, because I would be the guy who would have been on the team doing that by your conspiracy theories. Oh, it was special operations guys putting bombs. Okay, well I'm the guy that they would call to go do that, and I'm telling you I wasn't at the World Trade Center. I want. I just want to just off on a tangent real quick. I want you to think about this. Is what you think happened on 9-11 because you really believe that the U.S. government let this happen or planned it out to happen? Or can you just not deal with the fact that we got caught with our pants down? Because that's the real reason why people make up this conspiracy theory because it's almost easier to say we did this to ourselves than to admit some cave-dwelling friggin' rednecks, you know, you know, Muslim rednecks did this to us. And that's just the bottom line. We got caught with our pants down, guys. All the evidence was there. We ignored it, and we got caught. That's it. Moving back on. Yeah, but okay, well, if, in in the in the touch on that, you know, if if everybody has a problem with it, at least we'll get a lot of listens. You know, we will get a lot of a uh, lot of shares because uh, people listen to what they want to hate about. So hey, oh, yeah, yeah. at least we get more airplay about it. God, hate but, all you want on what we have to say because it, it just you know there there is no such thing as bad publicity. I'm, well, uh, I think uh, I'd rather I'd rather be famous than infamous, but infamous will work too. Yeah, that's that is true. We're not infamous for saying anything wrong. I mean, we're not the ones out there no. telling everyone that our government you know killed two thousand three thousand people so that they could make money on oil that we never seized. So <laughs> just so, but uh, going back to that, and you were talking about Rescorla of the uh, the statements from the Port Authority uh, and the authorities to to stay in place. A full five years before, in the mid-90s, or, or seven or eight years before, he was training his staff. This was part of the, 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 the training that he did is, do not listen to external commands, listen to me and my people. A full, you know, eight years before 9-11, he had this drilled into people's heads. And so you can't, you can't, at the, and this was, there's a, there's a funny story, a funny story, but it's amusing is, from the uh, original bombing in 93, where everybody's kind of running around and, and, you know, what's going on, and he's trying to get everybody's attention. And finally, he stands up on a desk and he says, look, do I need to drop my pants to get your attention? <laughs> okay, everybody, you know, sort of look at my eyes and, and let's get the fuck out of here, right? You know, and, yeah. and so if that were to happen on 9-11, if the last minute he tried to say, no, don't listen to them, listen to me, that authority wouldn't have been there. Right. His preparation of no 
listen to me, do not listen to them. That's one of the first things in some of the articles that I'm sure you'll link to. Uh, he's on the phone with Dan Hill where he's saying that the Port Authority is telling us to stay in place, but I'm getting my people the expletive out of here, right? Yeah. You know, and that's right. that's his thing, and that goes back to that preparation piece. He also, you'll see, uh, there's pictures of him, and I'll, and I'll, uh, I'll link one of the pictures in the show notes. You see these pictures of him with a bullhorn. Uh, he had this bullhorn that he also had, and that part of that bullhorn's intent was a to get get his voice out there heard and over overpower all the panic that may be ensuing. Because you're gonna panic, you know. I don't care who you are. I don't care how much stuff. Even I'll be honest with you, Rick Rascoli, even in his situation, was probably panicking on the inside as much as anyone else. But what you find in, in certain crisis situations when you have purpose and you're in charge of other people, you almost have a internal force that makes you focus because you're responsible to get a to get a handle on the situation. When you're not responsible to take control of a situation, many times that situation takes control of you. And uh, that's what, what, what goes on a lot of times in these, in these crisis situations. You'll see a lot of guys who they, they say they rise to the occasion of being a leader. But it's it's it may not be that as much as it is is they know they have to do that that that's their job and so having that job and that that's why he was really big if you read into his things he gave people little people jobs they had to do and you see a lot of time in crisis management it's all about giving everybody a little piece of something to do that way they can focus on that and not the fact that the world is falling apart around them and really for those people in the World Trade Center on 911. Their world was falling apart around them, and for some people, the world, yeah, the world literally—that was the end of the world for them. And so they really did fall apart around them. It, there's nothing worse than having no plan. Um, some of the worst things right. about 9/11 were seeing footage of those people jumping. Um, the, the, those people—they had to make the decision that that was their only option, and that really goes to the horror and the evil of the people that that did what they did on 9/11, knowing that was going to happen, and the fact that Rick Rascola got back into the tower, last seen on the tenth floor, going up, going up i mean the tower's getting ready to fall apart around them they heard creaks and groans in the tower they knew that something bad was about to happen with these towers and him and those firemen and those first responders they kept going up to get more people out you know and, and that's something you talk about yes likely uh rescorla was uh you know terrified stress whatever uh, but it goes back to what you were talking about earlier about his men called him hardcore and and they they you know marine corps like core c-o-r-p-s you know, that's what they called his platoon was the hardcore. But but that he epitomizes, to my mind, the resilience of the military service member, that there is a hardcore within us, a core of resilience that is within us, that regardless of, of whatever the situation is, um, the, the stress and the terror, there is still a core, uh, sort of run silent, run deep kind of thing that, that goes inside, that that's what we can draw on in these moments of stress. That's what caused uh, Rescorla to fix frickin' bayonets, right, in the 1960s yeah. in advance on the enemy, right? You know, this isn't uh, World War One. This is, you know, this is modern warfare, essentially, and I'm still going to fix bayonets. That's what, that, what, when he was called to go back um, after um, uh, X-Ray onto Albany, he drew on that hardcore to pull in. Um, the, the, the thing I read earlier about, you know, dropping the mic on the colonels and the National Guard to draw on that, that reservoir of resilience. That's, I think what, uh, his example on nine 11 drew on that hard core of resilience, uh, that, that veterans have, um, that, that we have the ability to draw on today. 
And another piece I want to talk about, this was something that I always, in, in you and I, Jeff, sort of straddle pre-war and post-war, right? We were right. part of the pre-war army uh, and then spent, in, and I think it was split almost evenly half in between the, the first 10 years and the second 10 years or, or so of our career. Uh, I remember, you know, the, the army values, right? Loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, uh, that wasn't always a thing, right? That came out in the mid nineties. I remember sitting in Grafenvir, uh, reading the FMs cause that's the kind of guy that the leadership FM, that's what I do. Uh, I, I might've been studying for a board or something. I don't know, but I was, I was reading the FM and the first thing, and I saw that and I'm like, man, those values, those are my values. I, I mean, it was for the first time I was able to see and print sort of somebody saying that, uh, and I used to use that a lot, and I, I'd, I'd ask my Joes, and when I sat on promotion boards, I'd ask that of the people. I said, what is the most important Army value to you? Which one is most important to you? You know, And this was sort of a, a Rorschach test, if you would, and there was no wrong answer. For me, before 9-11, it was always integrity, and this was my, this was my reasoning, was because I didn't believe that um, – that without integrity, you couldn't have anything else. You couldn't be loyal if you didn't have integrity. You couldn't have honor if you didn't have integrity and so on and so on. So for, for, for many years, I thought integrity was the, um, the single most important until I heard about Rick Rescorla and those who went up the tower instead of going down the tower. And that takes courage. That takes a hardcore inner strength, a, a, an whether it's inherent, I believe it can be trained, but that takes a well of courage that that I think the integrity burned away. Not, I mean, there was no other choice but to do what he did, and and I think that for me that was the 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 biggest legacy. Uh, if, if there's anything, any legacy that Rick Rescorla had for me, it's the legacy of the example of just unbridled courage. This is something that I actually was going to do a whole show on later on, and I'll probably still do it. But for those of you out there who who want to look, there, I'm I'm as clueless as anyone else on things that I'm not exposed to, and so my interpretation of what courage is was always altered before I saw it for real the first time. And you know, we always talk about these these fearless heroes and these fearless men who are courageous. The word fearless should not be included in that because without fear, you can't have courage. And what I mean is. Courage is not the absence of fear and doing, you know, doing the right thing. Courage is the presence of overwhelming fear and still doing what you have to do despite it. I'm here to tell you that, you know, as a Silver Star recipient, there there is not a moment that I regret getting the Silver Star because the things that I had done during the time when I was awarded it scared the shit out of me. It scared mm-hmm. the ever-loving piss out of me. And so I know that Rick Rascola at those moments had his own more, you know, his own mortality in his mind. I already can see people who are going to put this out there, so I'll put it out there right about. Rick Rascola was was dying of cancer at the time that this all happened. Uh, he was suffering from cancer and dying, but I don't think that that cancer at all ever entered into his mind. And this is a man who, all the way up until his until his final moments, lived lived more of a life than some people who never die of a disease or never are put in danger ever live. Um, this guy lived a. Uh, a life to be inspired by. And much like uh, Jason Dunham, who I said, these are the kind of people that I want to be like. These are the kind of people that I want my kids to look at and emulate and become like. And I only hope that for the rest of my life that I can live up to the example that guys like Jason Dunham and Rick Rascola put out there. 
because selfless service and and putting others before you because we are just by nature we are we are self-important by nature everything we do you know even when you when you fall in love with someone you fall in love because of how they make you feel everything that we do in life is very much based around this and i hate using the word selfish because i don't think i don't think it's bad i think it's just human nature but we have a selfish portion of ourselves that everyone has by nature to be able to push past that especially in crisis situations to me is just that is the most inspiring and and that is really someone that is just someone to be you know put on a pedestal there is a there is a statue of of rick riscola at fort benning georgia fort benning georgia the home of the infantry the place where guys like Patton and eisenhower and grant and sherman that's where those guys are at that's where those guys are those guys are made legends in places like that. This guy has a statue there. I don't think there's a statue of Sherman or Grant there, but this right. guy's got a statue right. there. You know what I mean? That's that's what this guy is. That's what this guy means to guys like me and Dwayne. And um, and I, I didn't know very much about the guy. I'd heard before about some guy that was that had done the things that he said. But I'm glad that Dwayne brought this guy up because I've spent the last two days reading and studying this guy i've ordered the book the one book that you just talked about that's just about him that book's on the on its way in the mail uh this this guy is what being a hero and being a leader is all about you know and and, and this is something this is for me uh just to get rascola's story out there you know if if we were to line up images of all of the the acts of heroism from the the iodrain campaign from uh, x-ray and albany you know, Plumlee, Moore, Tony Nadal, George Forrester, you know, there's all of these, you, you have, you know, dozens of, of, of heroes to choose from, you know, and Rescorla standing there in line. And if I were to, if you, you know, any one of us were to say, okay, pick who that is, and they'd be like, well, who's that guy? And he wouldn't be picked. Same thing with 9-11. There are stories of heroism from the, the, the planes, you know, and, and, and the one that went down to Pennsylvania. And there's, there's thousands of stories of heroism. Um, and if I were to choose any one of those, but it would be Rescorla, because consistently he showed the values uh, of of caring for his people um, and and preparing to do what he needed to do. Um, he's uh, even before um, I, I think even before nine eleven. You know, I'd read the book in the mid nineties, and I I used to use the uh, um, the the kind of things from from LZ Albany, especially that march to L, LZ Albany. Uh, to some of my trainings, right? I used to, to tell my soldiers about it and say, look, this is what happens when you don't do X or don't do Y. Um, and, and I saw even before then the value in what Rescorla was doing. And then just more that I learned and learned and learned. And I actually, the heart of a soldier is not in, um, you, you can't find it in your local bookstore. You got to order it, like you said, right, Jeff? Right. Well, I, I found it uh, in a used bookstore in uh, Philadelphia. I was in Philadelphia back in 2012 and I just randomly went away. And the copy that I picked up is signed by Daniel Hill and James oh, nice. B. Stewart. Oh, yeah, that's awesome, right? I mean, man. That's I mean, and, and I'm like, this is this is probably one of, I mean, this is uh, one of my most uh, prized books. Um, I mean, and it's like, and it, it's not replication. It's like wet ink signature. Uh, Daniel J. Hill, uh, Airborne Ranger, Special Forces, Captain of Infantry, retired. Um, the only thing that could make this book more special to me is if it had Rick's frickin' uh, signature on it, but he was gone by the time it was uh, um, by the time it was published. But having, this, having Daniel Hill's signature on it, I mean that that guy again, he's another one that we could do a show just on him. Uh, oh yeah, you're this gonna. Guy, you're, he predicted the the nine eleven attacks almost verbatim. You know what I mean? So. When you when when you get the book, he's he's gonna be he's uh, he's a fire eater. He's a he's a little bit of a. 
but it, but but this story is 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 about both of them personally. And this is a guy, Rascorla. It's not just the books, right? And it's not the statue. The guy has an opera, freaking written about him, right? There's songs written about this guy. Um, he, in in the fact that so few people know about him uh, amazes me. And so I, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to come in and, and talk about uh, talk about Rick and hopefully this inspires some more people to learn about him. Yeah, I want to thank you for coming on and thank you for bringing him to my attention because uh, we're going to do our best to get more people out there to know about him. He's definitely going to get blasted out there uh, come next week when the show gets released. But before you go, second half of one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on so quick is uh, – I have also ordered another book online that's coming that's coming soon. Uh, it's called Headspace and Timing of Veteran Mental Health from a Combat Veteran Perspective, written by Mr. Dwayne K.L. France. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your book. So, yeah, it, it's actually an interesting uh, situation. Um, I, I work with veterans in the criminal justice system, and the book is uh, nothing more than a, a series of the blogs um, out of uh, 2016. Um, uh, a, Back in, uh, I guess, January of this year, some of the veterans um, who were incarcerated here in El Paso County came to me and said, hey, um, you know, we'd like some things to read, you know, in our groups. We want something, you know, from combat. You know, we, we, we want to talk about some stuff. And I said, yeah, I've got something for you. So I gave them a couple of uh, articles and, and they were like, man, this is good. Let's, you know, can we get some more? So I put together uh, a series of 52 articles um, that, that were all written in 20. 16, uh, so that they could have one, uh, one a week to read, you know, sort of in their groups and reflect. And, and I've gotten a lot of, I, I, from them, I was in there yesterday. Um, and, and maybe being going back to that famous versus infamous, I, I walk into the, the veterans ward in CJC and everybody kind of knows my name. It's not quite cheers, but you know, it's close. Um, but, uh, it, and so once, and I gave it to some other people, and and you know it it resonates, and I, I've had a lot of uh, uh, a lot of feedback um, on on the posts, and so we put it together, uh, and it's on an ebook, uh, and and you know you can get it. I think um, our our buddy um, our buddy Kevin uh, put it up on the Change Your POV uh, website, so you can get go to it from uh, changeyourpov.com slash hst book. Uh, and you can see it there. It's on Amazon. Uh, and, uh, and, and really it's a way to get the word out about veteran mental health because that's what we're trying to do is change the way that we think about veteran mental health. Yeah, Kevin Fairbanks over. Uh, he's our Sunday episode here on the Change of POV. I think he's also given away a free copy of the book uh, on his uh, his show. So I recommend going to the website, visiting over to his uh, his section on the uh, website, and you should be able to read there about. He's got something going on where he's giving away a free book. I mean, the book is not that expensive, guys. And and uh, just so you guys know, me, me and Dwayne know each other because I started reading his blogs online long before I ever even knew Changer POV podcast. I was following Dwayne and reading his stuff. His stuff is definitely insightful, inspiring, and uh, it, it'll do a lot for you if, if, it, if not to just peek some thought process inside of you that, that definitely could help people out. So get out there and get it, and there'll be a link to it also on the, uh, the show page. For Dwayne K.L. France, as he's got his name written, LTC, definitely Rick Rascola, you know, now one of the guys on my radar and on now on your radar as a listener and get out there and read up and find out about this guy and tell others about Rick Rascola. Tell others about him because like me and Dwayne said, this guy, people need to know who this guy is and what he's done. So I want to thank you, Dwayne, for coming on again. It's always a pleasure, sir. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, yeah. we'll look, look forward to having you on again. Maybe we'll get on here and we'll argue whether uh, 
whether Sherman saved Grant's career or Grant gave Sherman his uh, an opportunity to be a psychopath in the South. We'll, we'll we'll talk about that one way or the other. Either way, me and me and me and Dwayne both are fans of Grant and Sherman, so total warfare is always a big thing. We'll talk about that in another episode. But uh, thanks for coming out, guys, and uh, remember that your life is in your hands. Nobody can tell you what you can or can't do. Be like Rick Rascola and do what you know is right, not what you want. What everyone else tells you to do. Don't oppress yourself with with self doubt, putting yourself in a cage. All right, free the oppressed. Dol. See you guys next week. Change your POV and all of it shows can help and heal and even educate. We want you to help us help others. Visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash change your POV. Become a patron of our network and our mission. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? 
Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.